From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. And welcome again to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. We are delighted to be with you to answer those questions that you may have about the Catholic faith. Uh, Today's host, of course, is Father Brian Mullady. How are you today, Padre? Okay, how about yourself? Very well, very well. Uh, Jack Williams away today, so uh, I'm going to be helping out here in my in my very little way, as uh, St. Therese would say. So uh, let me give you those phone numbers, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Uh, if you are listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205 271 2985. You can always send us an email. We take those uh, 24 hours a day around here at uh, openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put Thursday or Father Milady in the subject line. We'll get that uh, squared away there. So today, Father, we're going to kick things off with a few words about faith, right? Right. We're having a lot of trouble uh, discussing the synod, among other things. Mm -hmm. And that leads us to the question of faith. Because what they're about is obviously trying to discern what our faith should be or is. Faith, as you know, is a theological virtue. Which means to say that it's the same knowledge as God has of himself. In other words, it's not ordinary human knowledge like reason. In fact, faith is a gift. You can't get it to yourself. It has to be given to you from above. However, it leads and it leads us to a kind of knowledge because knowledge precedes will, love. In faith, the knowledge isn't completed by just conclusions. Now, today it's been customary with some people to try to play off the fact that our faith can be defined in propositions like the creed and just say that faith is, you know, a union somehow with the loving God, as though trying to discern who this loving God is and set it off in propositions is somehow inimical to love. In fact, they're both necessary because faith is a peculiar kind of knowledge since the the object isn't evident to us and never will be. In other words, the more we believe, the more our mind is drawn into God and expanded in a kind of supernatural way because God is always first, even though sometimes from our point of view we perceive ourselves as first, that in order to have true faith, we need to be enlightened and we need to receive it as a gift of grace in which we cooperate. 
So faith is a, a, a knowledge that involves propositions, like we say in the creed, but it doesn't end with propositions. It's the kind of knowledge, and there's very few examples of it, in which the intellect ends in the will, and the will supports the intellect, and they both go together, and of course the will is where love occurs. So, in the celebrated problem of the Reformation, justification by faith, we, with the Protestants, believe that you know, our justification consists not in our works as such, except in so far as some of those works are oriented to faith, but first of all, in this kind of knowledge, but then this kind of knowledge stimulates us to work, or what we call merit. When Luther was reading the Bible, uh, Paul says our justification begins with faith. Well, Luther added the word alone <laughs> in the margin. Hmm. And it's not alone. Though faith is necessary for charity, or the will, intellect, is necessary for the will, obviously the complete experience of our union with God as he knows himself, which is what faith actually is, can't be completed in just the proposition. It has to involve deeds. It's like the person who says, well, I'm going to do good. This is what I should do. But then they can't get out of the chair to mm, go and do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And then you also have people who say, well, as long as you're loving, it doesn't matter what you think about it. Well, that's like saying, I walk and close my eyes, and I'm going to naturally go in the right direction. <laughs> when, in fact, the road may lead you over a cliff to yeah. your destruction. Mm -hmm. So faith is the sort of knowledge in which both go together, and our justification consists in faith as a beginning experience. But this beginning experience, then, is oriented toward the fullness of faith, which is found in charity. And that's the reason why faith with works is considered to be perfect faith. Okay. Faith without works is considered to be imperfect faith. And the, only the one justifies you, which is faith with works, or what they used to call the more classy name for it, or classic name is living faith and dead faith. Faith with works is living faith. Faith without works, or if you want to say charity, is dead faith. And so we can't say our justification consists in faith only. We have to say it also consists in charity, okay. deeds. Mm -hmm. And the primary deeds, of course, in this case, would be the deeds of the sacraments. But then we also have good works. And as we know, according to Matthew 25, we are judged at the last judgment 
by our works. I was hungry, and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me to drink. I was naked and in prison, and you clothed me, or you visited me. So the works of charity are just as important for living faith as the intellectual act of making conclusions is. And you can see this in someone like the Blessed Virgin, who in the um, Annunciation conceives by faith. So strong is her faith that once it's been explained to her what will happen, she consents. And that consent is um, a sign, because she, of course, has no sin, mm-hmm. original sin, but it's a sign of the justification of the Holy Spirit that's already occurred in her. But then the first thing she does is perform a work, an act of practical charity. She's received what theology calls motive of credibility. This isn't such so difficult, says the angel, because your cousin Elizabeth has conceived, and she who was thought to be barren is now you know, pregnant. Mm-hmm. So as soon as Mary hears this, she, it says in the scripture, in haste, proceeds to the hill country of Judea to basically be the midwife uh, of her cousin Elizabeth, who needs her, who is with child. Mm-hmm. And it's a very, um, well, we don't have midwives too much today. But in those days, they were the people who primarily helped pregnant women. So, obviously, this is an ordinary action, mm-hmm. but it's given an extraordinary uh, meaning because of its motivation, which is by faith. And when Mary proceeds in haste, not only does she do this action, but then Elizabeth says, Blessed are you among women, etc. And then Mary evangelizes Elizabeth, and her faith also leads her to be the first evangelizer. Mm, beautiful. Thank you for that, Father. In a moment, we're going to get to the phones. We'll talk with Paul in San Antonio. Lines are open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady on EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey, lines are open for you right now. If you have a question for Father Brian Mullady, 833-288-EWTN. It's a free call, 833-288-3986. Or if you per, uh, prefer, shoot us an email. The address for that, openline at EWTN.com. You've probably heard a wonderful program we feature for you each weekend on EWTN radio and television called 
EWTN Bookmark with Doug Keck. And uh, there's also a short version of that same program called EWTN Bookmark Brief, uh, featuring the author of a, a new work, giving a short synopsis of the work in his or her own words. Well, if you've heard this on the radio or seen it on television, you can now receive these as, as a weekly email, including a short video blog. Visit EWTN.com, click on subscribe, That'll lead you to a little menu of things that you can subscribe to. If you choose Bookmark Brief, that will uh, come to your email inbox each and every week. So check that out, EWTN.com. Click on the word subscribe. And if you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning with Paul in San Antonio, listing on the Guadalupe radio app. Hey there, Paul. What's on your mind today, sir? Well, I'd like to ask uh, Father... How are we to understand, as Catholics, the meaning of the wrath of God? Okay. The wrath of God is something that we project onto God. Obviously, God doesn't have emotions, <coughs> because he doesn't have a body. Mm. And so, when we talk about God's anger, what we are discussing is the fact that we project onto God this feeling in response to human evil. So just as uh, evil things in us make us experience the emotion of anger, so God's reaction to the order of the world being assaulted by irrational or um, what we call it mortally sinful behavior in which we lose grace, this causes a rift, not in God, uh -huh. but in his creation, in such a way that the reaction of creation would be to resist, and that resistance itself is called God's anger. Okay, is that helpful for you, Paul? Yes, well, could it also be interpreted as consequences we suffer for not following his will the way he desires for us to live? Yes, what I was interested in in my response was the fact that God himself doesn't experience anger, but it rather is reflected in both, whether, well, it could be human acts. Anything that is out of the order of the universe that God created. Okay. And, Paul, we thank you so much for your call. Hope that's helpful for you. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian Milady, 833-288-3986. Roland is a first-time caller in Missouri listening on the Great Catholic Radio Network. Hello, Roland. What's on your mind today, sir? Oh, okay. So, new to the Catholic religion, uh, my wife and I have been going to conversion classes for about nine weeks now. Uh-huh. Love it. Absolutely love it. So, got me to thinking about a family member who has been in the church for many, 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 many more years than I have been. And I just, I have, I'm starting to have questions about her. I don't understand how she's a lesbian, married lesbian, 
supports the Democratic Party, who I believe are really for abortion. And I'm just really having a hard time dealing with that spiritually. I just wonder if I could get a little bit of insight on where the, where the Catholic Church is on gay marriage and, and abortion, supporting <laughs> congressmen and politicians. Well, that's a good question. <laughs> Um, well, even the Pope who supports, perhaps, but we're never sure, because he's very confusing in the way he goes about saying things, who perhaps supports um, blessings for same-sex couples has fallen short of saying that their marriage is in the true sense of the word, because he can't really. I mean, it's contrary to Holy Scripture. Um the Catholic Church on lesbianism, therefore, continues with the idea that it's not right, it can't be the basis for marriage, but uh, some people think you can tolerate it. Uh, they're trying to change this Dominican cardinal from Vienna is talking about changing our catechism to not say that homosexual acts are disoriented in themselves, well, that you can't really hold that. He, they may succeed in making some kind of language like that, as far as the Vatican is concerned, but that wouldn't be a matter of faith. In fact, as you know, in this synod, they're not defining anything. In fact, they don't even have any documents for the first half. They just sort of give kind of focus group summaries and the Dominican, who's a member of my order, Timothy Radcliffe, is supposed to be the, uh, what do they call it, the spiritual director. Uh -huh. And he just says, well, we're waiting now. We're waiting, 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 waiting for a year. Well, it's obvious they didn't do anything in this one except broach the subjects as possibilities. And now we're waiting. <laughs> so, okay. I mean, uh, the, your attitude should be that if she's doing actions that are lesbian actions, those in themselves are disordered, and she's trying to justify being a Catholic doing it, she's wrong. And also, uh, one wonders what her husband thinks if she's doing lesbian acts in a marriage. What does that say for him? Well, uh, I don't. I I think she is not married to a man. She is. Um, oh well, whoever. Yeah, you know, yeah. So it's a strange thing because today, as you know, many people, even people in the church, hold that logic is the creation of white European males, so they don't feel like they have to be logical, but. You can't have any kind of thought or uh, statements that are, you know, meaningful if they're not logical. So at some point along the line, who knows when that's going to be, someone has to introduce logic back into the conversation and uh, say, you know, a thing cannot both be and not be the same time at the same respect. You, lesbianism can't be both good and bad. It has to be one or the other. 
And in Christian terms, it's never been good. It's basically justifying sodomy, really. So um, my attitude would be just to ignore her and do what you've been learning to do in your class. Rowan, appreciate your call. It is uh, Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. We have two lines open right now if you have a question for Father Brian. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Let's go to Beatrice, a first-time caller on Long Island, listening on the great Veritas Catholic Radio. Hello, Beatrice. What's on your mind today? Yes, uh, I know the Mass is of infinite value, and I was just wondering... What is the difference between having a Mass said and being remembered in a Mass? Okay. Oh, uh, the difference is that there are four effects of the Mass, and the two are of infinite value. You can't repeat them. But the other two, which would be propitiation, is one of them, and I think appeal is the other one. Um, both of those, because they're a matter of our human approach to this, uh-huh. are finite, and therefore they can be repeated. So because of two aspects of the Mass, you wouldn't repeat it. But because of the other two, you could have 10,000 Masses, except for the repose of someone's soul, and repeat it. Okay. And Beatrice, thank you so much for your call. It is Open Line Thursday with Father Brian. A couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Uh, Father, you used the uh, the word propitiatory a little, little while ago, and uh, Darnell has this question. How is the Eucharist propitiatory? Well, the Eucharist is propitiatory because... Christ's sacrifice by which he offered himself to atone for all sin uh, is continuously made present to us. Remember, there's only one bloody sacrifice which mm-hmm. just that happened, and that's on the cross. But in the others, they're uh, unbloody, and the Council of Trent's position was that the Priests are the same, the victim is the same, only the manner of offering differs. So the unbloody sacrifice would be an attempt to make present this propitiatory character equally to each generation in its own context. Okay. Thank you, uh, Darnell, for your question, and we'll uh, go to break on this one. This is from Gwen. Do prayers count if you're distracted while saying them or if you don't feel good while praying? Well, as to the second, it's clear. Prayer isn't a matter of feeling. Uh huh. In fact, sometimes you feel rotten while you're praying. Uh, but that doesn't mean that your prayer has any less value. If you're distracted... As long as you began, every distractions are a part of every prayerful life. You can't get away from them mm-hmm. um, because distractions are the result of imagination, and you may as well try to get at every image that exists, which is impossible in us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as long as we've made the intention to pray, 
even if we get distracted while we're doing it from the fact of prayer, uh -huh. the actual meaning of prayer is still with us for the time in which we're doing it. All right. And uh, Gwen, keep fighting the good fight. We do appreciate that. Yeah, Father, I remember asking a priest one time uh, if he was ever distracted while praying the rosary, and he says, every day. So you just, just got to keep at it. In a moment, we'll get back to your calls at 833-288-EWTN. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady on EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Lines are open for you for Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program. Uh, interesting question here from Victoria, Father, who says, My friend says the state should not enforce religion. Therefore, gay marriage should be allowed. How can I respond to this? All right. Well, gay marriage is contrary to the natural law, mm -hmm. not just the religious law. And so it's true that the state's um, mission isn't to implement a particular kind of religion, especially in this country, because in reaction to the wars of religion in Europe, Congress um, originally made a law where they forbid an institutional established religion, much as the British have in, in England. But the fact that we are called to have a moral character in our state, especially regarding things like family values, are uh, immemorial. Uh -huh. And not only that, but the natural law, as I say, forbids it too. And the state does have a uh, right and duty to implement natural law, not religious law, but natural law. All right. Appreciate that. And uh, thank you, Victoria, for your question. It is Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. Father, we began the program with a, a wonderful deep dive into the subject of faith. Ryan has an email here who says, how can I learn more about the faith on an intellectual level and put that together with an emotional or personal relationship with God? Well, first of all, you read the Catechism. Yes. <laughs> because that's a statement of faith on an intellectual level. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to go much deeper and you were capable of doing it, you could read a theologian like Thomas Aquinas or St. Augustine or someone like that. As to it stimulating your will or your love, when you read about love and you read about how much you're loved by God, the very knowledge of that could cause you, should cause you to return that love. One learns to love by being loved. And the more we realize how much God loves us, the more we should return that love. Brian, uh, Ryan, we hope that's uh, helpful for you. Back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Melissa, a first-time caller from Baton Rouge, listening on the great Catholic Community Radio. Hi, Melissa. What's on your mind today? Hi. Um, a friend asked me about making the sign of the cross. 
And I've always done the Holy Spirit. When you do the Holy, you touch your left shoulder and then go to your right. Is there anything, uh, what if someone did it the opposite way and did the left and then the right? Well, the, in fact, the, East, the Eastern Church does it that way. Uh, we do it the way we do it. I don't know why. <laughs> but it's uh, some, uh, both of them have to do with things in history where they wanted to emphasize certain things about Christ. And both are correct. Okay. Hey, Melissa, thanks so much uh, for your call. Here's a question now from Hayden. How can I explain the Eucharist as a sacrifice? Ah, well, first of all, you have the separation of the gifts when they're consecrated. Uh -huh. So the body is separated from the blood. So that's a sign of the uh, original sacrifices where animals were killed. Uh, this, however, for us is not a matter of killing an animal. In fact, it's Christ offering his will unto death because he, is get, he does get killed, in fact, but not by himself, by the Romans at the behest of the Jews. Um, he does do this that we might continually realize how we're um, freed from original sin and from actual sin. Okay. Bishop, Sheehan, Bishop Sheehan used to reflect Yom Kippur by saying sin is in the blood after the original sin. And so there has to be some blood shedding in order that the sin may be taken out of us. Now, he was thinking of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Uh-huh. But in the New Testament, the bloodshedding is connected with the unloving disobedience of Adam and not doing the will of God. Whereas today, it should be connected with doing the will of God. And the, the real sacrifice is the one which occurs in our own cells by putting to death our egos, the spiritual sacrifice. Mm. Beautiful. Hayden, thank you so much uh, for your email. A uh, quick one here now from Jim. Jim says, A Baptist pastor told me that we Catholics believe that we are saved by the sacraments and not by Christ. How can I respond to this Baptist preacher? Well, the, the sacraments, first of all, Christ instituted the sacraments. Uh -huh. um, you can see this in the baptism by John in the Jordan. And the many, many revelations, which are more perhaps not as pointed, but which are very uh, theologically connected, like the vision in Ezekiel of the water that flows to the right side of the temple, just as the blood and water flows from the side of the dead Christ, and from it the church is born. So the blood in that case would represent the Eucharist and the water would represent baptism. So uh, all the sacraments act by the power of God because Christ himself instituted them. And then the seventh sacrament, which is the sacrament of sacraments, 
um, the Holy Eucharist is not only the power of God, but it is God. Hmm. So it has to do with signs and symbols and how the signs and symbols relate to the realities which they signify. Jim, thanks so much uh, for your email. A, a rather long email here from Timothy, who says, Dear Father Brian, I have an interesting question for you. As you know, there are three requirements for a valid sacrament, valid matter, form, and correct intention. Uh, historically and theologically, the Church has taken a very broad view of intention. This is to protect the faithful's access to valid sacraments. Even a priest's own lack of faith does not destroy intention. All that's required is to intend to do what the Church does, whether the minister believes in it re in reality or not. However, what if the minister has an explicit intention not to carry out a valid sacrament. Let's say a priest using valid matter and form at Mass in his own mind intends the sacrament to not be confected. He says to himself, hey, I know what the Church intends, and I intend not to do it. How would this be any different than a priest demonstrating for a class the matter and form of the Holy Eucharist, but with no intention to actually carry out transubstantiation? Uh, what are your thoughts there, Father? It'd be the same. I don't know why you think it's different. Um, in a class, I'm not doing mass really. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to instruct people in the proper method of the ritual and to what it might mean. And the same would be true of a priest. While he was saying mass, um, intended not to do it. Now, of course, this would be clear if he brought it into words and said this is not my body mm. but he doesn't have to say that uh, you don't have to be in the state of grace yourself but you have to do intend to do what the church does mm. whether you believe in it or not uh -huh. there are plenty of unbelievers who were priests who still confected valid sacraments because they wanted to serve their people who believed in the sacraments. And so um, when they said this is my body, they meant it the way the church means it, and therefore the sacrament was confected. But if you think in your mind, I'm not doing this, I don't want it to happen, then it, it doesn't happen. Okay. Very good. And uh, Timothy, thank you so much uh, for your very thoughtful email. It is Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. Here's a reminder that this program encores tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern. If you missed any part of today's program, or if you just like to hear it again, listen to it tonight, 10 p.m. Eastern, only on EWTN Radio. Back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Here's James in Louisiana, listening on the great Christ Our King Radio. Hey, James, what's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, how y'all doing? Great. I was wondering about the luminous mysteries. Um, I know that uh, we were taught that Virgin Mary taught St. Dominic the rosary. I was just wondering why, uh, if, she didn't, if, if she wanted us to say the luminous mysteries, why she didn't give up to us? Why, why did they come in so many years later? Okay, Father, I don't know if you got all that. It's not a good phone connection, uh, but he's he's ex asking to please explain the rosary and the luminous mysteries. 
Well, the rosary are meditations on the life of Christ, and they're meant to help the laity to develop a lively spirituality based on Christ. Um, the original 15 mysteries, well, there are actually many versions of the rosary. There's a thing called the Dollar Rosary, which is seven decades of seven Hail Marys ah. and things like that. But originally, with St. Dominic's experience of them, they uh, reflected the 150 Psalms. So that's why we have the 15 decades, 15 mysteries. Mm -hmm. And all of them center in one sense or another around Christ. Now, Pope John Paul II was very interested because of Vatican II in implementing scripture. And so he wanted to include mysteries from the New Testament, mm -hmm. which had not originally been in the rosary, but in order to give them a more evident scriptural reference. So things like the institution of the Eucharist, which is not in the original mysteries, um, the baptism of our Lord, those things were added, and actually it was based partially on a private revelation um, in order to underscore the fact that the rosary includes uh, all the scripture and that these mysteries are also important to understanding Christ. Mm, beautiful. And James, thanks so much for your call. We're going to go from James to Jane. Jane's question is, is it possible that there was human death before the fall, and is this compatible with Catholic teaching? Uh, no, on both counts. Okay. Uh, there was a kind of a death, but it was, I always like to say, otherwise we couldn't give him earth to heaven. But it wasn't a corrupting death. It wasn't a death that involved suffering. The way I always like to use to describe it is that it's, Sort of like Snow White, uh -huh. you know, who eats the poison apple and falls in the sleep of the living death. Uh -huh. But she still has the rosy cheeks and the whole thing. Mm, yeah. And it wasn't until Prince Charming wakes her that she comes alive again, but her body isn't corrupted. And the corruption that's involved in death is caused by original sin. I see. Okay. Well, very good. Thank you. Always like to quote Snow White. I think that's a fantastic thing to do. <laughs> Makes me think of uh, the uh, Princess Bride. Have you ever seen that movie, Father? It's a, I have, yes. Wonderful. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Open Line yes. Thursday with uh, Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. Douglas asks this question, how can I know when the Bible should be taken literally and when it should be taken metaphorically? Uh, I you can know this by the context. Okay. And also the community, whether it's the Jewish community uh, before Christ came or the Christian community, contributes to the uh, judgment about how the Bible should be taken in what case.
Okay. Very good. Uh, Douglas, thanks so much for your question. Dean wants to know, what is the church's teaching on predestination? And oh, am I, gosh. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, You want this in five minutes? It's, only, it's only a one-hour show here. So he yes. says, what, what, number one, what is the church's teaching on predestination? And number two, am I free to disagree with it? Well, you're not free to disagree with the church's position on it. Okay. Perhaps a specific interpretation you might be. Okay. Uh, look, uh, God, we don't believe in double predestination like the Baptists do. We don't believe that God has already determined who's going to heaven and hell, and that's the result of his choice to do that. Instead, we believe that all people are predestined for heaven. But a part of that predestination is their free choice. So God, in fact, knows who's going to freely choose heaven and who is going to freely reject it. And he's already built that into his predestination as a part of things. So he knows, for example, that Judas is eventually going to betray him. He doesn't want Judas to betray him. In fact, as you know, he uses every means possible to change his mind. But in fact, he knows that Judas won't listen to those things and mm -hmm. it, will, it will happen. Well, there you go. And thank you so much uh, for your question today, Dean. It is Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. Kimberly has an interesting one, Father. If uh, someone goes to confession... Do they have to make the resolution to avoid the near occasion of venial sins? Well, I would say yes, <laughs> but the trouble is what that means in practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and some people uh, who are perhaps more rigorous in their interpretation of Christianity, especially the Jansenists and people like that, uh -huh. They were very rigoristic in their interpretation of this. I don't think that the church in general is quite so rigoristic. I think we allow for, um, you know, not a, a strict rejection of any possible occasion of sin. But we realize that people are going to be in occasions where they're more susceptible to sin, uh -huh. and we accept it under that. Okay. Kimberly, thanks so much for your question. Here's one now from Michael. Can you explain the apostolic letter Dominus Jesus, which Cardinal Ratzinger, Ratzinger and Pope John Paul II say that you who do not have to be Roman to be Catholic? You just have to be in apostolic succession. I personally am a member of the old Catholic Church in which this letter also states that we have valid orders. Am I really Catholic? From what I read, the document says I am, but I keep hearing ads saying, come home to the Catholic Church like Rome is the only Catholic Church. Any thoughts there? Uh, well, to my knowledge, the document you're referring to doesn't mention the old Catholics. And in fact, they don't have apostolic succession, I don't think, because they reject the council. 
and uh, they ordained people under that rubric. Now, that's, I think, a debatable point. The question about Anglican orders isn't quite so debatable uh, because they've rejected the whole idea uh-huh. of, of what the, it means to be a bishop regarding jurisdiction, and that includes, of course, the Bishop of Rome, mm. but any bishop in the apostolic succession. So that's why Pius V declared their orders invalid, and therefore they don't have apostolic succession. But regarding uh, other uh, persuasions, uh, see, I thought you were going to mention the Eastern churches. Mm. The Eastern churches certainly do have apostolic succession, and they're not Roman. Uh So um, that's, I think, what that applies to. I don't recall any specific mention of the old Catholics. There might be. Yeah, I don't either, no. Mm-mm. Okay. Well, uh, thank you so much, uh, Michael, for your question. Here's one now from Jamie. Should we make reparation after a sin is forgiven? Uh, yes, that's what the penance is for. Okay. You know, we all receive a penance in confession. Mm-hmm. And the penance is our attempt to make rest of rep- uh, reparation. Now, it may get further than that in the sense that uh, you stole a family's only livelihood. A part of your reparation should perhaps be to restore that livelihood and not keep it. Uh, and, and that's, or, or, for example, you commit murder, you go to prison. Um, now, you can't require that as a condition for absolution. Mm-hmm. But it should naturally lead a person who wants to make reparation to do so. All right. Jamie, thanks so much for your question. You're listening to Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. We're kind of tackling some emails and questions we've received on social media uh, fairly recently. Here's one from Diane. What is meant by the term Godhead? Oh, well, a Godhead, as far as I know, I mean, I just know what you know. It refers to the fact that you have God, mm-hmm. but that for our God is a transcendent God who alone is God. And therefore, Godhead refers to his nature as infinite and omnipotent and that sort of thing. Okay, very good. And uh, Terry's watching us on Facebook this afternoon. Terry says, Currently, we're short-handed at my place of work and have been working seven days a week for several months now. I know we are supposed to rest on the Sabbath as stated in the Bible. Am I sinning by not resting? I am providing for my family, and I do get to go to Saturday night vigil mass. Any thoughts there for Terry, Father? Oh, well, uh, yeah, uh, I wouldn't worry about it. Um, if you're going to vigil mass, you're doing the primary thing we do on Sabbath, Sabbath, uh-huh. the Sabbath rest, which is assistance of the Eucharist. Mm. So you're fulfilling your obligations, so to speak, to that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Regarding, but if you're talking about just what kind of work you're supposed to avoid, well, it's generally called servile work. And it has to do with the kind of work that servants do or slaves uh-huh. as opposed to free men. Now, in our society, even when I worked in a job like 50 years ago, sometimes you were required to work on Sunday. 
And that originally caused me a lot of conscience qualms. But now I realize that if the job requires it, and it's the way you're supporting your family, then you shouldn't feel it's not servile work in, in the sense that it's normally taken to be. And you don't have any recourse to keep your job except to do that, I wouldn't worry about it. Okay. Terry, thanks for watching us today on Facebook. This question from Walt, when we pray, are we supposed to ask for things or just pray for God's will to be done? And does our prayer change God's mind? Oh, I'm glad you asked that because we've been reading the letter to Prabha by St. Augustine ah. in the Office of Readings, and that's this is the subject it's about. Um, first of all, uh, both is the answer to your first question. Okay. You pray the will of God be done, but there's nothing wrong with you praying for certain specific goods that are needed in your life or to avoid certain specific evils in your life so that God's will may be done better. Regarding the second, you don't change God's mind. God requires that we mention these things in prayer, not because he needs them, but because we do. We need to know that we depend on God for everything we have, whether it's a, your daily bread or grace or, or everything, really. And so when you bring that before God in prayer, it isn't because he, you're informing him because he already knows what you need. What you're doing is expressing the fact that you know that you depend on him to receive these things. All right. Father, uh, thank you so much uh, for all that you do for EWTN, for all of our listeners all around the world. Could you leave us with your blessing, please? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be sent upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. And as we mentioned earlier in the program, you can catch the encore. Perhaps uh, you tuned in a little bit late or you just want to hear an answer that Father gave earlier. You can check out the encore tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on EWTN Radio or go to the podcast at EWTN.com slash radio. Click on the word podcast and you will see today's program, Open Line Thursday. On behalf of all of us here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. Or Father Brian Milady. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Open Line. God bless.